0: Welcome to week two of Trinity Presbyterian Bible study. I'm so glad you're here or listening um, or watching and if you have any questions about your small groups, um, the homework, or maybe even if you're watching this from out of town, please find me um, on email or the website. Um, But let's get to it. Let's get to lesson two, which is titled, The House That Jesus Built. And one of the things I love about Hebrews is the writer really pulls from Old Testament. Um, These listeners of his original audience were very familiar with their Old Testament. They were Jews. Um, They had become Christians, but they were very familiar with all the practices established in the Old Testament. So that's why you see a lot of the writer Uh, quoting scripture, quoting Old Testament. And just as an aside, I think this encourages us all never to think just the New Testament is the Bible, but that this New Testament writer really based what he was doing and writing and telling them on what he saw in the Old Testament and what happened and what God told his people. And it's really one continuous story. So we're going to continue that um, theme by looking uh, last week we saw how Jesus was better than the angels, even though he was fully man and could understand us. He was also God. And so this week we're moving into comparing um, our faith to what the Israelites in under Moses uh, did. And so that's where we're going this week. So let me pray. Lord, please give me just space in my brain to communicate. There are so many things going on in this lesson. And I ask that we would understand your word and that you would bless it to us so that it's not just head knowledge, but helps us in our present day. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, let's start off by reading part of Hebrews 3. We will study Hebrews 3 through four thirteen, but I'll read it in chunks as we go through it. So let's start with verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Okay, so let's jump into this. First of all, we see Jesus referred to as an apostle, which is, which is an unusual title for him, but it makes perfect sense. If you read John 5 30, you see the father sent Jesus. He is an apostle, meaning he was sent by God to us. He's also a high priest and this original audience would have totally understood probably more than we do what it meant to be a high priest. And this is what Jesus is to them and to us. Um, if you look back at the high priest in the Old Testament, he represented the people to God as he gave sacrifices um, on their behalf. He interceded for them. Um, he, he taught them. Um, and this is what this is what the people need to hear, that Jesus himself is interceding for them and he is the sacrifice. But then it talks about how Jesus built this house and it refers to Moses and how he was also part of this house-building effort. But he's better than Moses was. Jesus is better. In verses 2 through 6 we see these ideas pulled out. And really if you look at the life of Moses and look back, say at Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you can see all of this kind of lived out on paper. Um, We see that while Moses was a very faithful servant, while he was very much an apostle himself because he was sent by God to teach them and to lead them, that Jesus was better. Jesus was the final. If Moses provided a snapshot of that sonogram, the baby is Jesus. Um, one time, uh, my, I was, there, uh, someone visited my childhood home and asked my parents, is this a Jack DeSell house? Well, what, is, what does she mean by that? What, the visitor recognized the house to reflect what she knew about this architect. Much the same way, God, Jesus is the architect. But maybe this person didn't, that saw the house, they really didn't say, who was your contractor? Who was the guy that took the plans and started telling the people where to put stuff? No, they were asking about the planner, the the one that had the big picture, the one that was really responsible for building this house. That's Jesus. That's God. Moses was like a contractor. He was doing what he was told. Um, He was important. Moses was so important, but Jesus is more so. Um, King David in First Chronicles 17, 11 through 12 hears God talk about how one day his son, his seed was going to build a house and he, God was going to establish him forever. You Remember David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to to, to show God how much he loved him and give him honor. I mean, he had a... a, a palace, and surely God needed to move out of a tent, and David had been told, no, you can't. You've got too much blood on your hands. Your son uh, Solomon will. But this goes further than Solomon. This goes to Jesus, his seed, that one day he will establish this house forever. So this is all pulling together, just like the, just all of the Old Testament is pointing in some way to what is coming in Jesus, and this writer is pulling it all together. You know, Numbers 12, 7 says that Moses was such a faithful servant. He saw, he like got to be with God in such a different way than other people did because he was so faithful. He was humble, but he still wasn't perfect. He sinned. He struck the rock in anger, and God told him he couldn't go into the promised land with his people. He couldn't even lead them across the Jordan. He was not perfect. Jesus, though, is perfect, and He makes the perfect sacrifice, and He is going to take them, take us into perfect rest, as we'll see towards the end of our lesson. So He's not, Moses, while a servant in the house and a good one, Jesus is the son of the house and the heir. And we know that's much different. It's much different to be kin and blood to the father of the house and the heir that will inherit it all and who really has a mind of there's a future ownership here. It will go with me than even the best of servants. Um, so we also this, have this house language and this brethren. You know, It opens up in verse 1 of therefore holy brothers. So God has been building a people that will live in this house the Old Testament people, the New Testament people, we people, that this is all coming together as this kind of band of brothers. So um, we also see, though, that not only do we need to consider Jesus, but we also need to confess him. Um, It's not enough just to, to walk that aisle or to check something on a forum, joining a church, or to even say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. This is an ongoing confession. This is, um, yes, I'm a Christian, and it's an ongoing, steady confession over your life. Okay? So how do we consider Jesus then? If that's what he's telling us, the writer's is, writer is saying, from the very first verse, based on all this stuff we talked about last week, Therefore, consider Jesus. Consider him as this apostle, as this high priest. Well, what does that look like for us? Um, I'm taking this from Kent Hughes who wrote An Anchor for the Soul because he really sums up just some practical things, how we can think about uh, what considering looks like. Uh, well, first of all, let's look at King David who who had a desire for God in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. He, panted for God he was he was hungry and thirsty for God he craved him do you crave God do you miss him when you don't talk to him or listen to him for a while do you become thirsty you know um just like if you maybe quit exercising over the holidays about now, do you kind of go, man, I think I need to go on a walk. I'm starting to feel like I need to, to get back into that. I'm missing it. I'm missing the way I feel when I exercise. Also, it involves some concentration. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 tells us to set our mind on things above. To, do we think purposefully on Jesus? This is one of the reasons the Lord's Supper is so important to take Take it is a regular, very physical reminder and an opportunity, even for one minute, while we're sitting there waiting to peel back that nasty little COVID cup and of juice and little nasty bread wafer, to go. Wait a minute. What did? What did Jesus do for me? What does my salvation entail? It means there was a death. It means. I have someone who made a sacrifice for me. It means I am part of this house. It means I'm safe and loved. Um, Also, it requires something of discipline. And we'll see this as we continue in Hebrews, that this considering Jesus involves us, um, like if you look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, of throwing off weights, throwing off sins that entangle us. You know, if you are on a diet, and I'm sorry I'm using all the exercise diet (laughs) illustrations today, but if you're on a diet, you do not go to the grocery store and stock up on Kit Kats. Or for me, Almond Joys. You don't do it. You don't don't say, oh, I'm going to buy this and put it in my pantry. Oh, but I'm going on a diet. If you're smart and if you've learned the hard way, like I have, you need to get rid of that stuff. You don't need to purposely bring it in if that's the opposite direction of what you're wanting to go in. So what is it that you may need to consciously put aside? Maybe you put aside the Kit Kats and you bring home the mini carrots. That is not as fun, but it is getting you to the goal. And that is one of the ways we consider Jesus. But also, this requires time. Psalm one, verse two, talks about how the psalmist meditates day and night on God's law. Psalm five talks about specifically in the morning I will pray. Now this is not a rule that this is you have to check this box or do this and you'll be considered considering Jesus. But these are practical examples of the, it has to happen, and I don't know how it has has to happen for you. Um, one of my kids. Um, Well, let's just say she had a really messy room. She was not taking care of business. Things, you know, she meant well, but maybe she didn't quite keep that doctor's appointment or didn't quite follow through on some things she needed to do. And I tend to be a list maker and I love sticky notes. And I have learned the hard way that, you know, maybe before we all went to school, I needed to make sure the backpacks were by the door. I needed to make sure the diaper bag was packed. I learned the hard way. So I, of course, wanted to share with her all the things I thought she needed to do. This is not that, Um, but I will tell you what I told that daughter as she was in her bed with mess all around. I said, you know what? I'm not going to make you do my system. I'm not going to tell you what your system should be. But I will say you need to get a system. So how can you get with God? How can you consider Jesus? How can you make a plan? How can you dedicate some actual time to Jesus? Now look, I'm saying this from a position of having five kids. I know many of us are moms of small children. And I get that. And sometimes... My time with God was when I'm at the changing table, changing a diaper, that's when I meditate on a certain verse, or that's when I pray, or that's when I think about Jesus. I am talking something is better than nothing. And this is not a guilt trip. This is not, now you got to do this in a New Year's resolution, because frankly that does not work for me, so I'm assuming it does not work for you. But find your system. <laughs> find what works for you. Um, you know, I, If you love to do certain things, it tends to get done. And I know you may not naturally love this or you may be intimidated by an idea of spending time with God or a reading plan or a prayer plan or anything. We have so many plans or tools to help you. Sometimes it's just going to someone in your type of position, like if they have little kids or say they have teenagers where You are so exhausted and driving them around to practices. You're like, what plan? I'm just trying to survive plan. Ask them what's worked for them. Um, Because at some point, this needs to become a reality. This can't be, oh, next season of life. Or, oh, I can't do that because. God works miracles. God is the worker. He is the miracle worker of taking the smallest and making it huge. Think about how he turned loaves and fish, a little bitty knapsack lunch, a, a little boy's lunch of a poor lunch at that into feeding 5,000. Think about how he took the widow's flour and oil, one serving left to provide for them. I mean, God delights in using the smallest things to just reap huge benefits. So let that encourage you. Um, The writer continues by comparing the people of God, though, to more of the same in Moses' day. And he's writing to them and to us to show us that we face a similar choice that they did in the wilderness. Remember, they left Egypt and they wandered for 40 years before they entered the Promised Land. Okay, and we're going to talk about that more in a little bit. But we want to learn. The the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to a lesson back to this people, back to the people under Moses. Let's do better than they did. (laughs) Let's learn from their mistakes. Let's look and seek because you have a choice, audience, the Hebrews writer was saying, and we have a choice too. You can choose to rebel against this God, this high priest, this apostle, or you can rest in him so let's keep on reading in uh, chapter 3 verse 7 through 19 therefore as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness for your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways So we see that they were unable to enter because of de- unbelief. Okay, here we go. We've, we've heard all these wonderful things about Jesus. And now we hear that writer, remember what I said last week, is that bad teacher that's really good and good for us. And you hear that pastoral heart of, hey, I don't want you to do what they did. And he re- starts referring to stuff that you may or may not know about. And so that's why I want us to uh, look back, and we're going to turn in just a second to some Old Testament passages. But first, that psalm he is quoting, if you look in the margin of your Bible, is Psalm 95. So this psalm was used in worship, but it's actually talking and referring to the same thing we're talking about in Hebrews. So what, what is he talking about? Um, and this psalm also summar, uh, joins worship with loyalty, Okay, the idea of, of, yes, we're worshiping, but in worshiping, we're talking about how we're loyal to God. So we refer to this time when God's people were not loyal to God. Okay, so let's kind of recap this idea of rebellion that happened under Moses. Um, you know, Meribah... Um, You sometimes hear hear of Massa and Mariba. Mariba is almost shorthand in the Bible for rebellion or strife or contention. And if you look through Scripture, you may see this pop up in different passages. Um, And basically, this is something that happened in their history that you just have to say Mariba and they know what you're talking about. And the only thing I can't think of, necessarily what we did um maybe people are going to refer to january 6 when there was an insurrection in the capitol and for years everybody will go oh i know what they're talking about um, in some ways we do that with other dates like remember pearl harbor um 9 11. you just have to say three numbers 9 11 or two numbers 9 and 11 And you know immediately you're on that same page with what happened that day. Because it's something that happened in our history that just we all knew about. And it's been referred to. So Meribah is kind of like that. Um, This is a time. Well, you know what? We're just going to read in Numbers. So if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to read Numbers 14. Because let's, let's look at the history of what they're referring to. Numbers 14, 1 through 35. I'm going to jump around a little bit just because of time. So this is when uh, Moses has come out. He has led them out of Egypt. They're, um, they have sent uh, the spies into the promised land. And they have come back and said, um, there's a problem. These peeper, people are giants. We are grasshoppers. There's no way we can do this. They had 12 tribes that had spied it out. They said, yeah, it's awesome. And there's no way. Except for two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb. And they were like, No, remember, God is on our side. We can totally do this. So they're freaking out. The people of God are freaking out. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Okay, notice what they're saying. They're not just saying, I'm scared. I need help. I'm scared. They're going, we want a new leader and we want a plan to go back to Egypt. You know, where they were slaves. And they're using this idea well they're they're they probably feel it too they're saying our wives and our babies we can't do this to them like we're all doomed so we would rather go back to slavery we we'd rather go to the bad that we know than to the promise of good with our god um and then of course Marin and Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord." Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But then you know what? The people wanted to stone, they wanted to stone them. Okay? Then God shows up. And the Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done them to among them? He says, how can they not trust me? This is like your child or your friend that you've given gifts to. You've protected. You've been their best friend for life. And all of a sudden they're like, I don't trust you to help me. And you're like, what? Like, are we talking to the same people? Like, why? I've proven myself. God is saying, you saw all the plagues in Egypt. We crossed the Red Sea. I mean, are you kidding me? Because he took it personally. He took it to mean they did not trust his character, and, and he just is hurt. And then he responds, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. And this is when we see Moses say no, and he intercedes for them and says, No, God, your glory, your name, remember it. Don't do that save this people. Pardon them because you're great and because you love them because you made a covenant with them. And so the Lord does forgive them, but they have a cost. And the cost is he says, what you feared is going to happen to you. Your children that you were so wanting to protect, they're going to inherit the promised land. But you are going to die in the desert. And except for Joshua and Caleb, everybody else of that generation wandered around and died in the the wilderness over the next 38 or 40 years. Okay? So this is, when we say don't be like the people who rebelled, this is what they're talking about. You see other instances of when they were at this place called Ma- Massim- Ma- Can you Mass and Meribah where they wanted to rebel because they didn't have water. And God-, and God told Moses, put your stick on the rock and water will come out. God over and over and over is dealing with his people that, that don't trust him. Even after he's proven himself over and over. And you know what? That's what's happening in this, this body of believers the writer's writing to. They are, they are really going, do I trust this Jesus? Do I trust this God? Or am I gonna rebel? Is, is this worth it? Is what God promises me worth it? Because right now, I wanna go back to Judaism. I wanna go back to where I have to do the work. I wanna go back to that place where I never could get peace because it never was meant to give me peace. I wanna go back to safe what I know, the evil I know more than the best that God promises me. And that comes down to I don't trust him. And we're no different. We're in wildernesses of our own. We're not in the promised land, the new heavens and new earth. But we've tasted and we know that God is good and he has given us this promise and we know him. And we're actually going, "Uh, I'm scared and I don't trust you. I'm not getting in the car with you. I'm going to go back to a disaster I know than the good that you've promised me. And we see in Romans 11:22 that Paul is also saying, "Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness." Women, we are being urged by the writer of Hebrews to continue in his kindness and not to turn back, and not to rebel, and to not go, I don't trust you, God, because I don't like what this looks like right now. I don't like being scared of the enemy. I don't like being in the place where I'm against the odds. And we discount how much God being on our side is all, all the power that matters. What is it that we are not believing today? What, what does our lifestyle say about what we believe about God, what are we not trusting God to do for us, what is your enemy that you're so scared of, what is it, figure it out and look at it and say God is bigger than you and say it out loud if you have to, say it to your best friend if you have to, call me and say it to me if you need some sort of accountability or to hear it so it makes it more real to you, And how are we disobedient based on our unbeliefs? What are the Egypts you are tempted to go back to over and over? Social acceptance, work recognition, position at work, um, getting life right maybe, um, your appearances, uh, the control you have over everything from your closet, to your schedule, to your health, to your children. Their appearances, their rooms, everything that we struggle with. And is your heart getting hardened? Is this disbelief starting to build up plaque on your heart so that it is getting to be a very dangerous situation? We will see next week how dire those warnings get. But to land on a good note, the other choice is rest. So let's see in chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. But we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, real quickly, what's this rest? The writer compares it to the rest God experienced after creation, the one we looked at last semester in Genesis. That relationship is at rest from, with God and His people. The, the idea of, I'm going to enjoy my creation, that's what we were meant to do. And we're going to get that one day. And in the meantime, we start tasting that, this rest. And Joshua's rest was never supposed to be the rest. It was, again, another sonogram snapshot of the baby that is coming And doesn't this explain why maybe we feel restless? That even on the best days, we still go, is this as good as it gets? Is there more? Is this all there is to life? If I get that promotion or get that smocked outfit or lose those pounds or marry that boy or, you know, beat cancer, is that it? Is that it for you? Is that all there is? Thankfully, it's not because everything we hold here will disappear. But what we have in heaven does not disappear. So this is so encouraging. Lately, I have been discouraged just in the way everything's been happening around me. From my own sin to the world. And I have thought, this is just not going to be an easy race. (laughs) This is going to be like downhill. I don't know. (laughs) Like, is this really as good as it gets? You know, there's a quote by Randy Alcorn I want to read. One common Christian misunderstanding today is that grace and salvation in Jesus means God has lowered His standards as compared to the Old Testament law. That's simply not true. God has raised His standards for the Christian life, but He has empowered us to live that Christian life through our relationship with Him and His indwelling Holy Spirit. His grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Because when He tells us to be diligent to enter that rest, that's overwhelming. But He puts in us the Holy Spirit. Yes, be diligent. Obey. We are to obey. But He gives us the power to do that. We do need to get in gear. But it's not because of our works that we're going to succeed. It's because God is using our works in us to teach us, train us, and get us across that finish line. And He uses the Word of God which is sharp and can go where I cannot go. It is living and powerful when I'm limited weak. It's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. When I can play dumb or deny stuff and be blind to my own sin and no creature is hidden from it, not the boss that mistreats you, not the husband that doesn't love you, not the child that, that is mean to you, not the neighbors that leave you out, whatever it is for you, everyone. Everyone from the most powerful person in the world to the least is going to be under the sight of God and have this judgment. And the Word is not only built into us and meant to be needed into us on an individual basis, but in a corporate basis. Because he says to encourage each other. Spur one another on to good works and get each other considering Jesus, who built this house that we live in. Thanks.